0: All right, well, um, we're going to start, uh, some of you know, I, I think I've said this, but Jay and I are going through Chronicles of Narnia, my son. This is our third time through. Um, he's 14, so I don't sit in bread and read to him anymore, but we're audio booking it. So when we drive around, we listen. So my mind's been in Narnia, and uh, I thought, as it's fitting to the text we're going to look at uh, and what we're going to talk about, I want to start in... Uh, early in the book, and then we're going to bookend the sermon with Chronicles of Narnia, okay? So this is from The Silver Chair. Uh, the first, We'll meet some other characters later, but the, the first two characters we meet here is, one is Aslan. And if you've never read The Chronicles of Narnia, it's never too late. <laughs> I lo- love these books. But Aslan is this, this incredible golden lion. Uh, and actually, I, I've said this before, some of the best conversations I had with Jay about Jesus early on were because of Lewis's character, Aslan. He just does such a good job with a holy imagination to communicate some deep truths in tangible ways. Uh, So you've got Aslan, and then you've got this girl named Jill who is finding herself in a new place. And she's thirsty, and she sees a stream of water, but between her and the stream is this gigantic, incredible, yet terrifying lion, okay? Okay. And in Narnia, the animals can talk. It's pretty cool. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl, and as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I do come? Asked Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And here's C.S. Lewis and his mastery. There is no other stream, said the lion. It's good. Well, we're in the series called The Table, and what we've been trying to do, I mean, we practice communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. We practice it regularly, but... I, just wanted to, I, pr- I wanted to do a personal deeper dive, and I thought it'd be good for our church to do a deeper dive because it's a moment we can miss. <laughs> and it turns out the New Testament has a lot to say about what's going on. We started in the Gospel of Luke. We've looked at some of the things Paul said to the early church, and we're ending. This is our second to last week in the series. There'll be this week and next week, and then we'll start a new series after Thanksgiving. But we're in the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, The Last Supper is where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. It's where we get our model. It's what we're meant to pattern. And John does something a little different. You know, Luke's account's about just a little section in his gospel. John gives you five chapters of the things Jesus says at the Last Supper. So we're just looking at little bits and pieces of it in this series as we try to learn a little bit more About what we're meant to do, what we're meant to experience, why Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to start in John chapter 14, and then out of this, I kind of want to talk about two things as it relates this morning. The first, I want to talk about our thirst. And I mean collectively, like in 21st century America here in specific, that's where we're located. But what I want to talk a little bit about is that there's a spirit of the age. We'll talk about the spirit of the age. There's a spirit of the age that's creating a deep thirst in all of us. I think it is. And then, of course, I want to talk about what quenches our thirst. C.S. Lewis, I believe there's only one stream. There's only one stream. So John chapter 14, we'll pick up in verse 1. Jesus says... Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. We're going to do a little bit of philosophy this morning. We don't don't usually do philosophy. We're going to do a little bit because I think sometimes it's good to step outside of ourselves and look at a big picture of what's going on because we're always being formed and shaped. (laughs) And we want to be shaped by Jesus, not all the other voices that are out there. Some of you may not get into philosophy too much. I think you'll be able to track. But even if, maybe maybe the only reason you're here today is to hear Jesus say to you, don't let your heart be troubled. In other words, if you came in this morning and you're, you're stressed out, you're anxious, you would say, I am one with a troubled heart. What I want you to hear Jesus say, if nothing else, is you don't have to be. You don't have to be troubled. That there is peace for you in him. And as we said last week, Christianity is really nothing more than simple truths taken deeper. (laughs) You begin to know something of this peace by trusting Jesus. Don't be troubled. Trust in me. Jesus says to your stressed out soul, trust in me. Let's keep reading. There is more than enough room in my father's home, in my father's house. We're going to talk about the father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? There's a place for you in the father's house. When everything is ready, I will come and I will get you so that you will always be, listen to what he says here, with me where. I am. That's what Jesus wants. Always. You and I with him where he is. And then he says this, and you know the way to where I am going. We'll come back to that line as we keep reading. I want to pause and just say a few things about the Father's house. I'm not a lone wolf Christian. I do a lot of study in community. I read other brothers and sisters in Christ. Throughout, throughout the centuries, you know, we've, we've got this blessing of this Global church family. And I think my favorite definition of the Father's house is this an experiential awareness of the infinite love of God. I like that. An experiential awareness of the infinite love of God. The Father's house is the place where you're always safe, you're fully known, you're seen. And you're cared for. You know, outside of the Father's house, you may have to try to impress somebody or pretend you're somebody you're not. You, you, you put on an act. You always have to be on. But in the Father's house, you can be at peace. And you can be your true self. That's the Father's house. <laughs> it seems that when you realize through Jesus how much God loves you, you'll be at home. In the Father's house. But there's other definitions for ways of understanding the Father's house. And in Jesus' day, maybe the first thing people would have thought would have been the temple. And what is the temple for the people of God in Israel? The temple is the place where heaven and earth are coming together. It's where God has made his home among his people, heaven and earth coming together in this place, in the holy of holies, in the temple. And as we're reading through John's gospel here, it seems that what we call heaven, Jesus calls where I am. (laughs) Heaven in John's gospel is the real presence of Jesus Christ himself with his people. Or maybe we could say this, heaven is the world as it should be. You know, there is a should be, there is an ought to, there is a goal, there is a purpose. The Greek word is telos, there's a telos. Heaven is, in a sense, the world of the perfect forms of the good, the true, and the beautiful. You know, when we sin, we miss the mark. That's the basic definition of the word. We aren't staying true to the telos, to the goal, to the purpose. I've sinned against who I'm really supposed to be, what my true calling is. I've, I've sinned. I've missed the mark of my true telos to be a faithful son or a faithful daughter to my father, to find my home in the father's house. Jesus says, and this is key for our conversation this morning, there is a place called the Father's house. There is a place called heaven. It's where Jesus is, and he's preparing a place for you there. Amen. Now maybe some of you are thinking, well, where is it? (laughs) Can you give me that address? I want to plug it into Google Maps so I know how to get there. You wouldn't be alone. Verse 5, Jesus said, you know the way. Thomas said, no, we don't, Lord. We have no idea where you're going. We have no idea. We've never seen this house. What are you talking about? Jesus said, maybe in one of my favorite verses, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're going to memorize a verse, memorize this verse. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you you had really known me, you would have known who my Father is. From now on, you do know him. And we'll keep reading. We'll see this again. And you have seen him. Hallelujah. 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 (laughs) Seen the unseen. But Jesus is saying in verse 6 is what Lewis is saying in the story I read you. There are no other streams. I'm a little afraid of the line. I'll go find out. There's no other streams. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes I like to say it this way, just to kind of make it more tangible. Jesus is the answer to all of life's questions, all of the deep, important questions. Why are we here? What is this? Jesus is the answer. <laughs> he legitimately is the solution to all of your problems. Not in a Sunday school like Jesus, but, that, but as you get to know him, He's the solution to all of your problems. Turns out, we live in a consumer-driven culture and our desires are run amok. Turns out, you don't have to go out shopping to find the perfect deal because Jesus truly is the satisfaction of all of your desires. Doesn't cost you a thing. He's already paid for that. (laughs) And he's the fulfillment of all of your real needs. I know there's all voices out there that tell you what you need. Yeah, you, no, Jesus is really all you need. And, and I, part of this whole troubled heart thing is that the more and more you and I learn to believe that right there, the more we understand the peace of God and those stressed out souls just calm down. I don't need that. I got Jesus. What'd Brad say? I got a good father. And Jesus is the revelation of that good Father. He <laughs> well, said, it sounds good, but, but I still don't know if I get it. Again, you're not alone. Verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus says, I've been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Again, that's, that's, that's pretty mysterious language. Our next series after Thanksgiving, we're going to lean into some of the beauty and the mystery of our Trinitarian God. Jesus says, the words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least be- believe because of the work you have seen me do. It's hard to get this. Thomas has questions. Philip has questions. Again, we'll explore this more later, but, but see and somehow, somehow seeing Jesus is seeing the Father. Or, I, I think I could say it this way this morning, in Jesus, we begin to see the unseen heavenly realities. What does Paul say? Uh, Also in Colossians, we started the service with Colossians. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the heavenly things. Paul will talk about the unseen. He's not an idiot. He knows what he's saying. But Paul believes that the unseen heavenly realm is even more real than what you see before your face. And really, that's what I want to lean into a little bit. I think it's good to lean into this stuff from time to time. I want to talk about a broader thirst in our world today, a longing for more, the thirst that comes from living in a world robbed of wonder. I want to talk about what we call secularism for a little bit, that all there is is what you see and there's nothing more. There's no telos, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, and for many people there's no real love. It's real. I was in a, Sunday, or a small group this week. My small group meets Thursday mornings at 6.45 a.m. It's a guy's group. Any guy is welcome. We're going through Philippians. You just got to get up early. <laughs> but we were talking, we're going through Philippians, so we weren't even talking about this. And we're wrapping up. And one of the guys in my group says, when this world is all there is and all you see is bad stuff, it's easy to just wallow in it and why not? I said, say that again. I'm quoting you on Sunday. Forget these academic scholars. I'm quoting Crossview people. <laughs> when, all the, when, when this world is all there is and all you see is bad stuff, it's easy to just wallow in it. And why not? He's describing a sickness. You and I can feel that there is something wrong with our world. There's something wrong with the age that we live in. It's It's an, an illness. And and I kind of want to call that sickness what we experience as the absence of the sacred. The sacred. There's a sense that something is missing. And we're thirsty. We're thirsty. Something has gone awry. Something is not quite right about the world. There is a gnawing And nagging discontent, and you feel it. You feel it in your own soul, and you feel it in the people around you. It's the fruit of secularism a world that is feeling, that is trying to convince itself that God is absent. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that secularism is really an experiment. And it's a relatively new invention. You could almost call it, I think, a superstition. I mean, for most of human history, the dominant worldview was of a God-saturated world where you could encounter the sacred. But that was before secularism became the spirit of the age. You know, I, I talk to people, I listen, I really believe that most people are not atheists. But they feel that God is somehow absent or really far away. Or maybe even worse than that, that God is irrelevant or optional in my consumer-driven society. (laughs) There's a sense that God is far off. And we collectively, we feel this as a kind of loss, whether or not we can diagnose the problem or not. And I also, just a step further, while secularism is the spirit of the age, right under the surface is this desperate search for spiritual things. If you're paying attention, there is a generation searching for something spiritual. Spirituality, you could say it this way, is the way secular culture identifies that they know they're missing something. I've been told that all there is is what I see, but there's got to be more. If not, there's only despair. I mean, honestly, the younger generations, they want to find something to satisfy this deep yearning in their soul. And I really think there's more searchers out there. I mean, sometimes the last person you think is searching is actually the one who's searching. But some people's story, if you pause to listen, they've encountered a version of Christianity, whether, whether it it's through a person or more likely through the media, through a TV show or a movie. <laughs> they've encountered a version of Christianity that's turned them off. A version of Christianity that reduces God to a tool to be used. Just a genie to rub to get what I want, Right? They've encountered a Christianity that seems to them more like a soulless pragmatism. Maybe, as we say from time to time, an easy, cheesy, cotton candy consumer Christianity. Or you've got people who are aware of the sickness, of the despair, of the pain, and they're burnt out on a manufactured enthusiasm. Don't make me be happy when all I feel is lament. A lot of people have been turned. They're, they're searching. There's got to be more than what I see. <laughs> but I live in a secular culture. I'm trying to be spiritual. I mean, that's, that's the key. Is anybody, anybody trying to be, just, just lean it. What do you mean by spiritual? <laughs> let, me, let me lead you to the only stream, right? We've lost something we can't live without. There's a thirst for something sacred, a, a desire, the sacred is, is, a, is, a, is an encounter with divine mystery and beauty. I mean, I listen to the younger generations. They're saying, Make it beautiful. Help me find the sacred. They're saying, I don't need another self help tip. I can get that online, I can get that anywhere. But I'm longing for more meaning in life. Tell me who I am and why I'm here. Tell me why this all matters. Let me just give you a working definition of the sacred this morning. The sacred is that which is somehow connected with God and gives access to God. That's sacred, isn't it? That's holy ground. It's connected with God and gives access to God. And if you step back and pay attention, secularism as the dominant spirit of the age in Western civilization is is a philosophy that tells you nothing is truly inherently sacred. No thing is really sacred. Secularism says, well, you may have an idea that you can call sacred, but it insists that no thing is sacred. No object, no place, no time is sacred. There's no real holy ground. When the secular West has accepted this premise, and because of that, we're sick. We feel a great loss. And we have become a people haunted by a nagging feeling that we're missing something. And I just want to name it this morning, that something is the sacred. And the hope, I mean, here's where the hope, right? We always turn to hope. Faith, hope, and love. (laughs) You and I can recover what we've lost, Amen. We've lost something, but it's not hopeless. There is a life that we've lost. The sacred has been lost, but it can be recovered. And maybe one of the ways you could talk about the age that we live in, part of the hope for our time and our place is is for us to, to, to live a Christianity that is recovering the sacred, encountering the living Christ. Well, how do we do this? How do we recover the sacred? Well, I think I mean, it's what I really like, what Jesus says here in John 14, we trust Jesus. <laughs> trust that he died on the cross and rose again. We remember that he's preparing a place for us in the Father's house. Or we could say we long for Christ with us. We long for the Father's house. Or maybe the easiest way to say it, to counter secularism and its incredible power in our lives is to say, I believe in heaven. And I long for heaven. And I believe Jesus has a place for me there. The modern premise that there are no sacred things is untrue because there are sacred realities. We insist it by our confession. We insist upon the reality of the sacred because we confess the word became flesh. The incarnation of Jesus settles the question of whether or not there are sacred things. And Jesus goes even farther. You know, John uh, he's he's kind of teaching us other things in the upper room discourse, the way he, he tells us what Jesus is saying. And he kind of plants a theology of communion earlier in his gospel. In John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says, I read this early in our series, but i want to read it again. Jesus says, he's kind of going to bookend it with this phrase here, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. What do people do when he says this? Well, they argue with him. Well, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In our day and age, what is he talking about, heaven? Now, if Jesus, which thankfully he's not because he's God incarnate, but if he was shaped by a secularist worldview, he would probably say... Oh, calm down, everybody! I'm just talking in symbols, because that's what secularism does. It takes the sacred and turns it into a just—it's just a symbol. It's just an idea. There's no real God to encounter. There's no sacred reality. It's just an idea. It just whispers it in your ear. So let's see—is Jesus a good secularist or does he double down? Ha! <laughs> He doubles down. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, let me get even more graphic, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood, that's your true drink. It's, it's more true than what you eat and drink. It's more real is what he's saying. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. Here he says it again. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, but will live forever jesus is talking about sacred mystery the flesh and blood of jesus christ is sacred it is according to my definition connected with god it's very much so the flesh and blood of god and it also that's why we come and partake of this meal it gives us access to god we believe that there are sacred possibilities and realities The word of God that is God became flesh and blood. The spiritual and the material connect through this sacred mystery. Jesus as the incarnation of the word of God is the ultimate sacred mystery. He's fully God and fully man where heaven and earth come together, which is why we can follow him into the father's house. And don't forget, church, that Jesus was bodily raised. This is not just a memory. It's not just an idea. It's not even just the story of a spirit. Jesus Christ was bodily raised on Easter Sunday. And because of this, Christianity is a sacred mystery. There are sacred things and sacred spaces and sacred times. In other words, to properly practice the Christian faith, it's not just done in words, prayers, and ideas. We could say it this way, to properly practice the Christian faith, we need water for baptism, and we need bread and wine for communion. When we talk about sacred mystery, we're talking about an interface between the spiritual and the material, between heaven and earth, a means by which heaven and earth are no longer separated but touching. But the problem with secularism is that what we've done is construct, you could say, a a, a philosophical, materialistic roof over our head. And because of that, we're in danger of not even believing in heaven anymore. If the only real is what I can see, if what I can touch, if what I can taste. And heaven is sometimes in the unseen, And everything just becomes a symbol. And we're cut off from heaven. And it crushes our soul because we think there is no difference between what a thing is made of and what a thing is. What you are made of is not what you are. What a thing is made of is not what a thing is. In the superstition of philosophical materialism, we think you are nothing but an assortment of atoms and molecules. That's what you're made of. That's not what you are. We talk about this all the time. You are a child of God. You are a noble creature made in the image of God. And one of the many reasons the modern modern soul is in danger, is weary, is despairing, is because we've sealed off our soul from heaven. Heaven is breaking into earth. Into the material reality of Earth, but we have convinced ourselves that there's no heaven. there's nothing sacred. We've built a materialistic roof over our head, and we've said that's all there is. Now I want to be clear, I'm not anti-science. Some of you know, my undergraduate degree was in chemical engineering. I've done a lot of physics. I've done organic chemistry. I used to live and breathe calculus. I'm just saying, I'm not anti-science. But I will tell you, as somebody who's authentically looking for meaning in life, all science did for me was draw me closer to God. I don't always understand why it gets portrayed as like I mean that's a sermon for another day. I'm just I'm not but when I'm talking, I'm not saying I'm anti-science. When I'm saying this, but I what I'm saying is I believe in Jesus. And he tells me there's a heaven. And it's more real than what I see. That there's a father's house and he's preparing a place for me. So let me try to bring this home. I told you we're going to come back to the Chronicles of Narnia and then we'll head into Lord's Supper. Uh, At the end of the book, we've got Jill's added to her party. So you've got a guy named Scrub. It's a great nickname for a younger brother. Just kidding, just kidding. Jill, Scrub, and then you've got a Marsh Wiggle named Puddleglum. It's one of my favorite characters. And you've got a prince. And they're in the underworld. So if you've ever been to like Mammoth Cave, they're underground. They're in these giant caverns and tunnels. And, and they're interacting with the queen of the underworld who wants to hold them hostage so that they never leave, the, never go back to above ground. And she's beginning to enchant them. And listen to how C.S. Lewis begins to describe their interaction. He says, Jill couldn't remember the names of the things in her world. And this time it didn't come into her head that she was being enchanted. For now the magic was in its full strength. And this this is Lewis being masterful. And of course, the more enchanted you get, the more you feel that you are not enchanted at all. The more secularism gets into your head, the more you start at are right. There's no heaven. All there is is what I see. And you don't even realize you've been enchanted by this rather modern invention that's more of a superstition than anything else. Well, the conversation goes on and they're trying to convince themselves that there is some place outside of underworld. And, and, and Puddleglum talks about the sun. And so just listen to the way this unfolds. You'll, you'll hear the spirit of the age. I mean, C.S. Lewis. What is this sun that you all speak of? Do you mean anything by the word? Yes, we jolly well do, said Scrub. Can you tell me what it's like? asked the witch. Please it, your grace, said the prince very coldly and politely. You see that lamp, it is round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and hangeth moreover from the roof. Now that thing which we call the sun is like the lamp, only far greater and brighter. It giveth light to the whole world and hangeth in the sky. Hangeth from what, my lord? Asked the witch. And then while they were still thinking how to answer her, she added with another of her soft silver laughs, You see, when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there's nothing in that dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale. a Children's story. Yes, I see now, said Jill in a heavy, hopeless tone. That's the sickness. It must be so. And while she said this, it seemed to her to be very good sense. Slowly and gravely, the rich repeated, there is no sun. They all said nothing. So she repeated it in a softer, deeper voice. There is no sun. After a pause and after a struggle in their minds, all four of them said together, you are right. There is no sun. There is no heaven. There's nothing sacred. It was such a relief to give in and say it. There never was a son, said the witch. No, there never was a son. But this is my favorite part. Jill is wrestling. And she's thinking, oh wait, I remember something. I remember something. She's being enchanted. I remember something. And she says, wait, there's Aslan." <laughs> You understand. There's Jesus. When you and I feel the malaise. When the sickness of secularism. You feel the weight on your soul. Heaven is just a dream. All there is is what you see. There's no meaning. There's nothing sacred. You're just a bunch of molecules randomly put together. You, when, when that spell comes upon you. You say. But there's Jesus. There's Jesus. I've encountered the risen Lord. I've seen him. I've seen the Father. Don't tell me there's no heaven. Jesus is preparing a place for me there in the Father's house of love. And what we're doing in this series is reminding ourselves that one of the ways that we recover the sacred is by understanding that this meal is sacred. And when we come to the table, We come to a sacred place in a sacred time in a sacred gathering where heaven and earth are coming together. Amen?